Hey there. Welcome to another week of the Square One podcast series. I'm excited to share this episode this week with Paul Gamble, who is a founder at Nori. Nori is a blockchain or crypto solution to the carbon sequestration markets or the carbon credit markets. And I find this to be one of the fundamentally most important conversations to have in the world today is is to figure out how to create a global incentive to participate within our natural earth in a way that is positive to the environment rather than potentially detrimental to the environment and to our existence. I actually, this is a topic that really brought me into the industry in the first place was the concept of a decentralized energy grid that was able to increase the efficiency of energy pricing and generation due to uh, pricing more proximally or, or more precise pricing. So charging at the time of consumption rather than the day before and needing significant estimates in order to charge uh, and, and, and estimate any sort of loads and demand. This is distinct or, or Nori's solution is distinct from that idea of this decentralized electric grid. Uh, Nori is more concerned with ensuring that there's not essentially a double spend on carbon credits. And uh, they have a, done a really good job at sort of creating the infrastructure to build um, a verified system for, for carbon sequestration. Uh, and Paul... I think has a lot of really good ideas about how to make this happen and how to scale into the future. Uh, this is definitely one of the efforts uh, that that need to happen of many, and there's there's a lot of work to do on this front. But um, anyway, I'm excited to share this episode, and I hope that you all enjoy it. It is one of the uh, episodes that's more about a a practical use case using blockchain rather than one that's that's so deep in the weeds of the jargon and, and the Web3 internet world. Um, this is more of an infrastructure play that, that is now incorporating blockchain soon and cryptocurrency soon in order to enhance the incentive structure uh, for its architecture. Anyway, thank you again for listening, as always. And uh, thanks again for, for all the feedback. I really appreciate it. And as we continue... Uh, please continue to send feedback because I want to continue building content that, that you're interested in listening in and, and that it's valuable to your understanding of this space and of this new technology that very few have a, a good grasp of. Without further ado, uh, please enjoy the show. Welcome to Square One, a place to deepen your crypto knowledge. I'm your host, James Duncan. Hey everybody, Paul Gamble's with us today. I'm super excited to have him here. Um, we actually connected relatively spontaneously at a clubhouse room uh, that was about thinking about like blockchain and, and social good and like how can we actually leverage these systems for like creating a broader, 
a better economy and a better society, I think, in, in, in a large way was kind of the focus of the room. Um, and Paul runs Nori, which is a, uh, a, a blockchain solution to the carbon market in part. Um, and I'll, we'll kind of be getting into that uh, today. Actually, for some background for you on, on myself, this was the idea that really brought me into the blockchain space was the idea of decentralized energy. Um, and creating efficiencies okay. within the energy grid. So it's not exactly what Nori is about, but it's it's sort of rel- uh, relevant. Um, yeah. Yeah. But Paul, could you just give yourself an introduction and, and uh, would love to hear what your experience has been in the space and how you actually came to launch Nori and how, how that became the, the main focus? Uh, well... Uh, for me, it starts back in around 2010. Uh, I was in grad school uh, at the time, and I had this um, workshop that uh, we had to do where it was like a, a management for engineers was the, de- the degree program. And we would do these extra workshops. And there was one where uh, they were teaching us how trading works. And so as part of that, the professor showed us something to do with Bitcoin in 2010. And I was really curious about this. I was coming from kind of like a, you know, libertarian Ron Paul audit the Fed sort of mindset to this. And I was like, interesting. So I went home and read the white paper and was immediately enamored and thought, okay, this is super cool. This can solve so many different social problems, in particular, like monetary issues, which is the whole point of Bitcoin. And that got me really into blockchain. So I started mining Bitcoin later that year in 2011. And then was just kind of following along as things happened. And then when Ethereum came out, that was when I got especially excited. Um, I had been working in software in Seattle, where I'm based, uh, as a product manager, building mobile apps for big brands. And um, so the idea of like programmable uh, social trust and programmable money uh, uh, put together was like definitely capturing my attention. Then in 2015, I got bored with the consulting that I was working on and decided to quit and pursue something else. And I was really interested in climate change because I was trying to figure out like, what what are these like big unsolved problems that no one is going after? And climate, obviously climate change is is something like that. And I was curious, like, what, what can we do to solve this? Not just make it less bad, but how do we make the whole problem go away? And uh, uh, perhaps a little bit naively, I, I was thinking, well, okay, the problem is too many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So the solution is we should pull those gases back out, right? And I started looking around and, and investigating this and wondering, like, who's working on this? What are the different technologies? Is it, I, I assumed at first that it was a technology problem, that we just needed to develop a better artificial trees or, or something like that. Um, but after a year and a half or so of that, I really realized that that's not the issue. We have plenty of uh, processes and technologies at our disposal. The problem is that people aren't doing them. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, speaks to a lack of incentives. So uh, in late 2016 was when we first started to see more tokenized projects taking off on Ethereum. Uh, like Aragon comes to mind as one of those early, and Gnosis and that kind of thing. Right. And... 
Um, I was seeing that happen and then, then all of a sudden clicked for me that I had these like two sort of parallel passions of blockchain and climate change carbon removal. And I was actually kind of worried at the time, like, man, am I going to have to pick one of these? And that's going to be like what I'm going to focus my attention on. And then it just made sense all of a sudden that what, what's missing here is a financial incentive for removing carbon from the air and a blockchain-based marketplace is really the perfect technology to create that. So that that's what became kind of the, the genesis for Nori um, was... Uh, around the beginning of 2017. And then we started putting a team together in uh, the middle of that year. We entered the blockchain for social impact hackathon that Consensus put on and nice. we won. Mm -hmm. And then we started the company from there. That's exciting. That's amazing. I love the um, the arc from you know traditional software development to looking into entrepreneurship and kind of leveraging a lot of your past engineering skills and, and, and context to try and come up with this, this incentive system for carbon removal. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I think, remember, yeah, no, go ahead. I, I remember thinking in like 2015 <laughs> or so, um, that like, like I studied computer engineering in undergrad and I graduated in 2010 and I, there was a lot of like study of like the early days of computing and uh, how those businesses were built and the products that they were building. And it always seemed um, like the, the sort of mythos around like Jobs and Wozniak developing the the first Apple computer, and then the uh, like the the work to, before them to develop microprocessors and stuff like that. It always seemed to me like, oh man, that would, that would just like such heady days. Like they were working on solving such like fundamental problems that we take for granted now, and I I really like felt like a, a somewhat of a sense of loss, like that that we missed out on that fun like uh that that kind of like starting from scratch and building something that's going to totally change the world but being at like the beginning and the vanguard of it and then in 2015 i remember thinking about ethereum like you know what i think that this is that moment again in a, in a different way and so it's it's been really exciting to me to be working on this stuff and being being around and involved and watching and, and seeing how these communities grow and the the adoption of them like this is this is that same opportunity for people of this generation to create something entirely new that's going to like totally change the way the world works totally and i love i think that i'm completely in agreement what what was the first moment that you like that that realization kind of came to be um about ethereum specifically like why you know why mm. did that spark i'm curious it was uh, actually it was the DAO hack. Mm. So wow. that's I, an important I remember, part. I, yeah. yeah, I actually I didn't get in on the crowd sale, and I um, was just kind of sort of following it at the time. And then the DAO hack happened, and that seemed kind of dramatic. It was, it reminded me of like the Mount Gox hack and when that happened, and um, so I started paying more attention. And then I was watching really closely how the Ethereum Foundation handled it, and I just thought that. They showed a lot of leadership and uh, treated it in a way that it deserved. I think they made the right decisions. And I was impressed by that. And so that was when I decided, okay, I'm going to start investing my own money in this and uh, trying to mine and, and, and buying more Ethereum because 
I believe that the leadership uh, at the helm, as much as there, you know, there can be for an open source project, mm-hmm. uh, I believe that the leadership is capable of weathering difficult storms. And now I'm on board. I want to be a part of it. So like what, what was at the time viewed as like the worst moment in Ethereum's history to me was like proving like, yeah, this is for real. That's awesome. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And yeah, I, I, um, the leadership and the human side of the Ethereum ecosystem is is definitely the thing that, um, to me, provides a ton of stickiness as far as like really understanding and and appreciating the evolution of this technology and where we can go with it. Like the ingenuity there, to me, mm-hmm. is like the most almost the most valuable thing that's actually created. It's not even there may be better protocols potentially, better technical solutions, but the actual community and the, and the building on it, you know, are, are that's mm-hmm. that's where the compounding returns come in. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It it helps to have a. a or my belief is when you have like a massively decentralized like open source project it's really helpful to have spiritual leaders who are kind of not necessarily dictating what has to happen but like every every decentralized thing needs some sort of leadership you you just can't be successful otherwise no that's a great point that actually um reminds me of this uh essay called this the tyranny of structurelessness um, and it describes the. I don't know it, but that sounds interesting. It's excellent. It's it's really great. It it describes the women's movement in I believe in the eighties, and how it was essentially sabotaged because it was too decentralized, and uh, mm. essentially anyone within the organization could kind of stand on the pulpit and claim to be the leader that can can write their own agenda for the entire movement mm-hmm. and it just became too discombobulated and didn't have a specific didn't have that knife's edge of like yeah. progress that it that it wanted to make and ultimately yep. you know the idea of structurelessness is not efficient and it is in somewhat a lie like any human organization will have some hierarchy at the end of the day of like human structures mm-hmm. and decision making um but right. i want to i want to refocus a little bit on like what you guys are doing at nori because i think the carbon market is the fundamental thing that could unlock our ability to actually combat climate change. And I think it's really hard to bootstrap a market like that. And I, I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, like how do you start, (laughs) I guess? Uh, (laughs) uh, yes, it is. Uh, it has been hard. So we started the company that's been like three and a half years now. And, um, uh, I don't. I wouldn't say that we like broadly have this plan or roadmap figured out at the beginning. But what has shaped out is we've been taking a sort of two phase approach to this. Uh, the first phase is getting the carbon side of things working on an end to end basis. So, in uh, fall of 2019 was when we launched our first sales, working with a so. I should back up. We work today with farmers who are sequestering carbon in their croplands by adopting new farming practices like no-till, cover cropping, and uh, crop rotations, managed grazing, that sort of thing. In practice, farmers can sequester about half of a ton of CO2 equivalent per acre per year. And what's actually happening is they're they're increasing the amount of organic matter in the soil, microbes and fungi, uh, through these practices. And the organic matter is carbon. So that's how they're getting that stored. And uh, in the future, we'll have additional methodologies, forestry, kelp, direct air capture. Uh, We want to be a a platform where people can propose new methodologies to us. We want to be agnostic to the different methodologies, but we had to start somewhere. 
So in the fall of 2019, we, we had been working, uh, developing a bunch of different partnerships with different ag, uh, agriculture companies and what we call a carbon quantification tool to help us like actually determine the amount of carbon that's being sequestered and just like lots of hard science stuff. And so we launched the first sales with the first farm project in October 2019. And then we've been adding more projects since then. And we're starting to get working now on like future methodologies and like what that sort of structure looks like. So we have a scientific peer review process and, and I should caveat, like what we're doing is not decentralized. We are using blockchain and crypto for some very specific purposes, but we're not purporting to be a decentralized protocol. Um, that's not our goal here. Uh, so just, I just think those things often get, uh, interwoven and assumed. Um, so the first phase was getting carbon working end to end. We're basically there now. Uh, we have a strong pipeline of supply. We have partnerships with big ag companies like uh, John Deere and Land O'Lakes and Granular and Locus Ag and, and others like that. Um, and then some, some I can't name, but you definitely know them. So there's so much interest in, on the supply side. Now we're starting to build out our sales team and, um, and, and that side of things. But the, the second phase of the roadmap is about layering in and integrating the cryptocurrency portion of this. And um, it would probably help if I described like how we're doing this. So one of the uh, big problems in existing carbon markets today is that, well, th there are really two kind of forms of double counting that are currently happening. So the first is at an international level. And this goes back to the, the Kyoto Protocol, which was passed in 1997, which has uh, established the first sort of frameworks at the UN level for how to set up carbon markets. And, you know, the, the idea was actually more about like nation states trading carbon, not so much like on voluntary, like corporate buying basis. But the idea was that developed countries would buy carbon offsets from developing countries. And so it would be like an equitable wealth transfer because the developed countries got to that point by emitting a lot of carbon. And, uh, and, it, and it should hopefully help mitigate and reduce the amount of carbon emissions happening in the future. Well, that all changed in 2015 when the Paris Climate Accords were adopted, where now Every country in the uh, world that is signed on has their own obligations for reducing their carbon emissions at the national level. Uh, so uh, before, if you were like Brazil, and Brazil is an important player in this, uh, you have all sorts of different like forestry opportunities, like preserving forests and that kind of thing because of the Amazon and, um, and, and the Sahara region. Now, today, it is the case that if a carbon credit is developed in one country and then sold to a buyer in a different country, both countries will count that as an emissions reduction towards their Paris climate goals. Mm. So literally every international carbon credit has been counted twice. Oh my this was actually... It, it, this isn't even like a secret. It's uh, uh, every year the UN holds uh, their Conference of the Parties conference, which is like their international climate conference. And the last one before the pandemic was in December 2019. They canceled the 2021, uh, the, the, the one in 2020. 
the the entire agenda uh, for 2019 was to solve this particular problem. It's a stupid problem. It's very easily solved with double entry bookkeeping, but they don't do it. Uh, for political reasons. Like if you were Brazil and you were told long ago, hey, we can just always export our uh, carbon credits and you know revenue comes in from that and we can count that, then then you're annoyed and mad that you, you can't. So that, course, that's the situation. Course. So there, so that's the international double counting problem. And then there's a, uh, a different like softer uh, double counting problem, which is when... Um, Typically, if you're doing like a carbon offset project, so you're 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 called a project developer, and you do something. Let's say it's like methane capture at a landfill or a dairy digester or or something like that. You work with uh, what are called uh, carbon offset registries. There are a few of these legacy registries that have been around for like 15, 20 years. They're um, uh, they're nonprofits. Their revenue comes from charging uh, suppliers, like things like registration and listing and transaction fees, and then consulting fees as well to develop the protocols to measure and verify the carbon associated with that project. So you go through all of that effort, you pay all that money to, so there's all sorts of upfront capital required and you do your project, whatever it might be. And then you're issued carbon credits by the registry. And these are just like serial numbers that they're maintaining a database of. And then you t- will most likely either you've already found a buyer in advance. So maybe you got like a big corporate sponsor to prepay all of that upfront capital that you need in order to generate the credits, or you work with a broker. And if you sell your carbon credits to a broker, then the broker is taking title to them. And then the broker will often sell them to another broker and sell them to someone else and someone else. It's just rent seeking along the way. They're just adding their own cut on top charging transaction fees, and then the, the registry charges transaction fees at each step of the way because you're just updating a, a line in a database about this. So you could get situations where the carbon credit has traded hands like a dozen times, and yet uh, it's not yet been retired. And I'm doing big air quotes here. So in carbon markets, the uh, retirement means that you're pulling it out of circulation and making it uh, no longer available for resale. Doesn't actually happen that often. So uh, you could have like a a big corporation buying up a bunch of carbon credits, then holding them as an asset on their balance sheet, make some big PR statements about it. And then if they wanted to, they could flip the carbon credits later. And then did they actually like deserve the credit that they got for that? I would argue no. So what we're doing differently with Nori, and this is why we're not working with any of the existing offset registries, we had to do this for ourselves, was to say... When you sell carbon, it should be immediately retired. This is a, it should be like a consumptive good. Every new dollar spent on carbon should result in new carbon coming out of the air, uh, not pushing pieces of paper around uh, uh, and just, um, yeah, adding middleman costs. So we've, we've, uh, we've done that. That also makes it a lot easier to do the international carbon accounting because when someone purchases carbon from Nori, uh, or, or through Nori, they are, they have to specify where it's being retired. So we can very easily report up and say, yes, this was retired in this country. So that's where the, the credit of this should go to. It has nothing to do with like the location of, of where it happened. Because of that instantaneous retirement, though, we lose the ability to develop a like commodities market for carbon, which was is something that exists today. Like carbon credits are traded, there are markets for this. 
So that's why we've introduced the concept of a token, where it's a, it's a medium of exchange token. Uh, so one Nori token will always purchase one NRT, which stands for Nori Removal Ton. One token per ton of CO2. The price of the token will fluctuate. It's a pre-mine, uh, 500 million tokens being created. And then um, as the, the idea is, as demand for carbon from Nori, uh, in uh, these NRTs, as demand for that increases, so too will demand increase for the Nori token. And since there's a finite number, if that uh, demand increases, then that should drive the price up, which makes uh, a much larger incentive for suppliers to enter the market. And then we've got this virtuous cycle going. So that's the whole concept of what we're doing. The, the Nori token becomes the reference price for carbon. So when people, when people want to know what the price of oil is today, they look at like, like West Texas Intermediate or Brent crude oil as references. We want to be the same thing for carbon. And then the Nori token is the commodities market where people can speculate on future pricing. Uh, they could maybe develop their own derivative products on top of it, that sort of thing. That makes sense. That's really interesting. I, hmm. I mean, and I think like, so, so, well, there's so much there and I, I love the depth and the detail of like the system that you guys have been building and like specifically thinking about how in some ways that secondary market for carbon doesn't, it kind of doesn't make sense, but it also needs to exist. Right. Um, as far as like, be, like the resale, the resale, right. Because without the resale, then the yeah. market doesn't form and then there's no market price. But it, with right. the resale, you just have financial arbitrage and these, these credits no longer mean anything more than just a PR opportunity and a financial mm -hmm. you know, uh, opportunity, more or less, for these, for these corporations exactly. that are participating. Um, yep. Yeah, you've got it right. Okay. And, and, so, but, and so how is the token, I guess, going to prevent from you know, that, that sort of the mis the misaligned incentives of just like the financial and PR opportunity from, from reoccurring once that token is, is like liquidated on the market. And, and do you see that marketplace as being distinct from the secondary marketplace that you see today? Uh, yes. So you can think of the token as sort of like a reusable gift card, where if you hold a token, you haven't paid for carbon yet, but you have a gift card that could be used to buy carbon. And then you pay the supplier that token. And then the supplier, if you know, if they want to convert it to cash, they do that or whatever, or they can hold on to it, you know, whatever they want. But then once that token re-enters circulation, then it can be used again by another buyer. Um, so you can imagine scenarios where maybe savvy financial teams at corporations that are trying to reach net Carbon, net zero carbon by certain dates, they should, like, if they want to hedge against future carbon price increases, they should buy tokens and lock in the price that they've paid for them and then use them on an ongoing basis in order to buy the carbon that they need. So that's, which is something useful because like sort of traditionally in, in corporations, if you're, if you're like a sustainability director, and you were trying to acquire more renewable energy or something like that for your company. You're often putting together like 10 to 20 year power purchase agreements uh, with that renewable energy provider. So you do that once, you get approval from your CFO once, and then you're good to go for 10 or 20 years. 
With carbon offsets, it works differently. Uh, typically, there's a sustainability person on the team who will often have a broker relationship that they work with, who will go out and procure projects, and they'll do this on an annual basis. So they'll have like an annual budget for buying offsets and they'll purchase them once a year. But if you were to do this kind of thing with tokens, then you could pre-purchase multiple years worth and get that approval from your CFO once, and then you have more flexibility to uh, to play the market when you need to. Right. That's super cool. So I, I think I understand now, like these tokens are, they will always represent the same amount of CO2 that's being sequestered, but the, and so you can yes. exchange them because the supply will be there essentially for it within the Nori marketplace, the supply will be there to exchange them for that amount of CO2. So if you purchase them today, you're making the bet that this is essentially a purchase on, you know, future uh, carbon, carbon off- offset. And you think that the price for carbon yeah. offset will increase, right? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I love it. I think that's so cool. Um, and I'm really, I'm really excited because it sounds like something that has real traction. Like I've talked to the Energy Web Foundation and like other, and like, I think they're doing good mm-hmm. stuff as well, but I haven't, I guess I haven't maybe spoken to someone with as thorough a system available. I mean, do you feel like there's anyone else doing this specifically? No, we don't have any direct competitors that we have competition in sort of three different angles. Uh, one is those carbon offset registries that I mentioned earlier, that those nonprofits that charge the suppliers for everything. So we, we sort of compete with them because they're another source of generating carbon credits. Then there are, uh, we have competition in the soil carbon space, which is mostly just agriculture companies. Like um, the the biggest one is a, a, a startup. <laughs> I don't know if startup is the right word to describe them because they've received over a billion dollars in investment <laughs> funding. So like, oh, I, <laughs> well, uh, series but they're B. called Indigo Ag. <laughs> series Q or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, so... So we compete with these different <clears throat> soil ag companies on um, uh, getting farmers to commit and supply. Uh, but I, I think we have a, a secret weapon there in the form of the token, uh, because I think we have the ability to drive prices. Uh, uh, I think this model can create better pricing scenarios for suppliers in our market than other markets could do. And then the, the third group of comp- competition are uh, other climate tech companies. Um, there are a number of these in, um, like in the Bay Area who are uh, either carbon calculator, like footprint calculators or carbon offset subscriptions um, uh, or other API type uh, integrations. And I think the, the one key difference to note is that they're either working with the registries to to just resell existing carbon offset credits, which have the same exact problems that I just described earlier. Like nothing, like they're not fixing any of the underlying asset issues um, or they're working directly with new um, carbon removal companies that like, there are companies that do more industrial based carbon removal. Um, uh, there are some other like nature-based solution stuff, um, but they don't have, methodologies or protocols for measurement and verification. And so that's that's something that we think is really important to have like a, a true, in, in our case, this is like sort of the Oracle layer for us is like determining what happened in real life and how do we make sure that that's represented accurately uh, on chain. Uh, 
So our advantage over all of these companies is that we're developing our own supply pipelines. We have the ability to create that incentive for suppliers to, to join our marketplace rather than others because of this token model. So that's why we don't have any direct competitors and we're kind of unique in this space. That's amazing. I love that. And that's also something that I talked to um, my other friends who are like involved with this space about the challenge is really that validity of carbon removal. And, um, and in order to create a high fidelity system that's actually doing the thing that we want it to and, is a, and avoids the <clears throat> second order uh, sort of misaligned incentives, I, I mean... I, th- I think what you guys are doing is, is like exactly like what, what needs to happen. And, and clearly, um, clearly you, I'm sure you agree with that. Um, that, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, <hope> so. <laughs> I, so. um, I don't know. I mean, this is like really, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like blown away. I'm like very excited about under like seeing how, how this will continue to develop. And th- there's also so much, I mean, really there's, there's a ton to, I mean, there's just so much to do right? Like, like how do you, Yeah. right? So I guess the main thing is focus on one viable source of carbon sequestration, which you're doing with soil and, and organic matter, yeah. uh, increasing organic matter within soil farmers, which I love that as like a, a kind of first step. Um, one of my friends has a, he's really into, uh, mineralization and, and the idea oh. of like pumping carbon into basaltic reservoirs. Um, curious what you would think about that and i'm also curious how do you verify like via oracles like how do you create those oracles of of like high fidelity that that determine how much carbon has actually been sequestered say in a farm Mm -hmm. today um so to your first question i i love the idea of mineralization uh it's super cool it's not happening at any reasonable scale and which is why we didn't start there um and our hope is that we can create price signals that uh, makes this more accessible and helps to scale that up. So that's why we started with soil. It's the most soil is the most affordable and the most scalable method of removal available today. Um, and then it's got all of the tailwinds from the food and ag industry that's all like falling over themselves as quickly as possible to to move in that direction. To your to your second question. Um, the way that it works in our system is first farmers adopt the practices that pull carbon out of the air and then they provide operating data to us um, like where their field is located, what kind of uh, um, fertilizer they used, when they irrigated. Uh, and uh, we need that data going back to the year 2000. And then it goes into our this carbon quantification tool that I mentioned earlier. It's a company called Soil Metrics, which is a private company spin out from Colorado State University, where they have a platform called Comet Farm. And Comet Farm has been funded and is associated with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And the way that it works is um, they have a, net, a reference network of soil sample sites around the country where they do really rigorous soil sample testing. Uh, and then they layer on top of that some different data models that USDA and EPA provides. And then when you send in the operating data from the farmers, they're able to uh, evaluate how much carbon is going in the ground relative to what would have happened if you had just continued with the conventional practices. Because soil sampling on, a, on an individual farm basis is not really uh, cost effective. 
Um, so, and, and then it's, it's also difficult because like the, the right way to do it is you have like a control field and an experimental field next to it. And you do soil sampling on both fields at the same time. You do that like throughout the year and throughout, uh, many years. And then you, what you're really measuring is the difference between the two. Not, it's, it's not as simple as just, uh, measuring, uh, soil carbon in one, you know, field A at time zero, and then again in field A at time one, and then measuring the difference. That doesn't actually tell you how much carbon has been sequestered, uh, as a result of the practices that they adopted, because soil carbon is constantly in flux, uh, from weather and, um, other, uh, like growing seasonal things. It's, it's, um, uh, the, the, really the only way we can do this is to, to measure against a control. And so this soil metrics company, they, they use this platform so we can more or less simulate that on a really cost-effective, uh, basis to, to get that amount, um, measured from farmers. So we, we do that in a fairly conservative way. And then the data that the farmers provide to us, that has to be verified as well. So there, there are about 50 companies that are accredited to various ISO and ANSI standards to be carbon market verifiers. And they do this with the other registries. So we're just working with the same people. And what they're doing is signing off on the accuracy uh, of the data that the farmers provide. So they might look at uh, receipts or invoices for seed or fertilizer purchases. They might look at satellite imagery to make sure that they, you know, they claim that they were growing corn, uh, like a corn soy rotation on this field. So they might look at, okay, uh, yes, I can actually see that there were there was corn crops going on this. They want to check that they have title to the land or to the carbon. Most farmers in the U.S. do not own their land. They uh, they have to lease it from a landowner. And we're we're asking the farmers to sign a 10-year obligation contract where they're going to keep that carbon in the ground for at least 10 years. So we have to make sure that the landowner is given their permission for this as well. Um, and then they're also checking that this hasn't been registered in any other carbon offset registry or that they're trying to sell this carbon removal anywhere else. Got it. So that's, that that's our sort of two-step process. Verify the data and then run it through uh, an open source peer-reviewed carbon quantification tool. Awesome. That's super cool. I, I, I was unaware of that uh, tool, but I, I'm glad that it, it exists. It's clearly, clearly needed. And I think that's also like part of the challenge with this uh, topic in general was that just that quantification and I mean, you know, what under what condition would the fields release the carbon? Is it is it if the organic matter dies and it's not taken care of or if it's over fertilized or something like that? Yeah, basically, like uh, in order to keep the carbon <clears throat> in the ground, you have to maintain these practices and keep going with them. Um, you could have a super flood year, which could end up releasing a lot of the carbon. Um, uh, and a super drought year could affect that as well. Cause what's happening is you're providing nutrients to that organic matter in the soil and that's coming through the roots of the plants that are planted. And that's why cover cropping is useful because cover crops keep roots in the ground during the winter when you're not growing your cash crop. Um, so that, that's why we have to measure what's happening relative to what would have happened on your land. Because if, um, if we're talking about, you know, farmers making commitments to adopt these practices, but then a bad flood year comes in, wipes out all of that carbon. How is that? Like the farm, that was, that was an act of God. Like the farmer is not able to control that. So we're measuring relativity. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and 
and how will it at what point will you say okay we have the crop we have the like the the soil carbon capture system kind of supply moving um at what point do you start diversifying into other Mm -hmm. supplies well we want to get through our token launch first which we're planning to do later this year exciting, uh, and then start integrating that as the method of payment yeah yeah super exciting um and and then we will start adding more because there is like an interesting design challenge that we still have ahead of us which is how do you how do you compare the relative value of one removal method versus another yep now, when I got started in this, I was thinking, well, you know what? It shouldn't matter. Uh, like the atmosphere is homogenous. It doesn't matter where the carbon comes out or how it comes out as long as it stays out. Like that's the important thing. I still believe that, but that's just not how the market is acting today. Like buyers do very much care about the removal method um, and the associated level of permanence. Permanence meaning... That there's this, this concept in carbon markets, which I, I think is a little flawed, but we're sort of stuck with it, of the the concept of how long that carbon is going to stay out of the atmosphere. So this comes from like forestry projects, which have been around for a long time. And that's kind of the only thing that has been carbon removal in the past. Uh, I, I should have said this earlier, but there are really like three different types of carbon offsets. There are carbon reductions, which are projects that reduce the amount of carbon that's going up into the air, but there's still there are still emissions happening. It's just less than would have happened otherwise. There are avoidances, which are kind of the same thing, but they bring it all the way down to zero. So they're saying before there were, there were emissions and now there are no emissions. And then there are removals, which are actively pulling greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere back out and then sequestering them. Uh, the 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 problem with forestry is when when these projects would happen they would uh they'll they'll generate credits over like the first 20 years and they'll they'll be estimating and modeling out how much carbon is going to be in these trees over their lifetime and they would just call that like 100 years so if you're a buyer uh and and this is this is if you were doing this like 10 years ago like wild west early days of carbon offsetting if you're a buyer, you want to know that what you're paying for is going to have a lasting, imp- excuse me, a lasting impact. Uh, so these uh, registries would just slap on 100 years of permanence on these offsets and say that's good enough. So uh, th- it's sort of insane because if uh, if you're only getting revenue for the first 20 years because uh, carbon offsets have a vintage to them, so they're saying you get carbon uh, your 2020 credits, your 2021 credits, your 2022, and so on. So you're only getting revenue from those 20 years of credits that you're delivering, but then you have an additional 80 years of maintenance requirements where you have to make sure that forest doesn't burn or get chopped down or, or anything else like that. Uh, and it's also that's also like multiple generations of people. It just, I don't understand like who thought that was a good idea. It just will not work. Uh, so we do it differently and where we say farmers are sequestering carbon in the ground for at least 10 years. And that's the contract that they sign with us. And if they breach that contract, well, we have an insurance mechanism in the token that I'll explain in a second. Um, but they have to uh, re-verify. They have to provide us that operating data every year. And then they have to re-verify every three years. And if at 
that next verification, they have been continuing to sequester more carbon, which should almost always be the case, then we can issue new NRTs to them and then they can sell those. But then they're signing a new 10-year contract for those. So you, you're having like a rolling kind of permanence here. And farmers are incentivized to keep going with this because it's benefiting their land. They like carbon financing for them is not necessarily about climate change. It's about how do they help finance this regenerative transition that they want to make because it's better for their land. It's better for their soil. They retain water better. They grow uh, higher crop yields over time and that sort of thing. So they're just as incentivized to keep going with this. But this way we're make, making sure that they've got continual revenue streams so that and continuing obligations to maintain that carbon. Does that, that mean seems to make every more sense year? To us. So every year they, they create a credit for their land that will sequester X amount of carbon um, over the next 10 years. And every year they're making that 10 year commitment. Is that right? Um, it's it more like, it's it, sort of, it, it's more like every three years. Okay. Um, but we're only measuring and rewarding <laughs> what they've already done. So, uh, you know, you sign up today and you're getting credit for what was already stored. And then in three years from now, you have to do your next verification event. And then what you sequestered between now and three years from now, that then you can get those credited and then you can start selling those as well. Got it. Okay. That's interesting. And why three years? Is that like in order to get the appropriate amount of data, this kind of thing? Or yeah, yeah, we just tried to strike a, the balance. It th there's a cost to verification, which the suppliers bear. Uh, in farming, it's like three to five thousand mm -hmm. uh, dollars. So uh, we wanted to make sure that they they had enough revenue coming in to be able to afford that and make it worth their time and investment. That makes sense. I really um, like that as a system yeah. for like less permanent uh, carbon capture mechanisms yeah. and do you imagine then there would be i mean for like mineralization for instance that's like theoretically forever captured right um would there be a whole different asset for that or you know how i'm just curious what your thoughts would be uh, that's the that's the question right now mm. so um we we have sort of uh two different uh actually i would love your feedback and opinions yeah. on this um we have two different options on the table uh, one is we could decide, so this NRT, the Nori removal ton, um, which by the way, is just an NFT. Um, so nice. super simple. Uh, we could fix it at 10 years and say, let's say you remove, uh, you, you do a, a ton of direct air capture to mineralization. Well, let's call it 100 years. I don't think we would go longer than a hundred years. Cause like saying you're buying a thousand years of permanence, like that's, that's silly. No, none of us are going to be alive. Uh, like why are we, well, let's not do it that way. That just right. seems like too much. Sure. So let's say, so let's say a hundred years. So then that would mean for every ton of mineralization that you remove, you have 10 NRTs, which then okay. implies that the value of mineralization is 10 X that of soil. Got it. Uh, that's one way. I think it's I think it's quite elegant. I think it uh, it's much easier for us to implement. Um, so because then it just comes down to a question of how do you determine the length of permanence for every new methodology. But then we're um, we're able to like continue to add new methodologies on an ongoing basis, which I think is going to be a competitive advantage for us. Mm -hmm. But the other option on the table is more like what I think you were hinting at, uh, which is well, what if we created a new NRT? for every new methodology, and then actually create a new payment token. 
uh, for it, where there's one token. Uh, so instead of the Nori token being the catch-all, you could have like a soil token and a direct air capture token, a tree token, a kelp token, whatever. And then then you'll have like specific pricing relative to the value of that type of carbon removal. That's really good from a perspective of uh, you know getting really granular mm-hmm. on pricing and that sort of thing. It's way more complex to implement and I think introduces a whole bunch of other challenges that um, might make it, it also might like make liquidity too thin. Mm. Uh, so <clears throat> these are the questions we're wrestling with right now on, on how we add our second methodology. So we're just going to start with launching the token for this soil methodology first, mm-hmm. kind of see how that goes and then uh, and then move from there. I think that's, that's really smart. Um, and I definitely don't have the answers. One thing that did come up um, when you're describing these though is, and something too that I've like, I'm bringing in from conversations from friends of mine who, one of, one of whom you may have also met at that clubhouse of Sebastian Graf. So he's, mm-hmm. he's my friend who was really focused on mineralization. And one of the issues with any carbon sequestration method is the capitalization and finding investors who, essentially don't care about a return on their investment, right? <laughs> because, or, yeah. or going through a, an, an, extent, an extensive grant program, you know, those are, those are the two options. Either like try and find some sort of business model to and convince some VCs who are relatively philanthropic or, or go through a, a deep a grants program uh, in order to support R&D for these larger, um, you know, like larger industrial initiatives that that could actually really benefit the the climate and and our, our society in general, um, and so in some part, like part of me is like, well, what if, what if, eat the the reason that each token could make sense for each methodology is because the the system is so complex for each of those types that they could literally. It, you know, you might need a whole team on on each of those types of carbon sequestration in order order for, to make that make sense. And the other thing is that you could potentially the, the token economy, you know, some percentage maybe could be siphoned off for an R and D fund to fund new initiatives mm-hmm. that that continue developing yep. research and development because you need that. You definitely need some some capital that that does support these kinds of research initiatives um, because it's such it's in such an early stage. I think. I totally agree. We've we've definitely talked about that kind of thing internally about how we might potentially support that um, in the future. The um, the question of how these things get financed there there are actually at least I can speak more broadly to the agriculture market just because it's more real today. Um, but there are a lot of players who are quite interested in financing, maybe some banks that want to provide like low interest loans to farmers to this, uh, uh, certain types, maybe like renewable energy funds that want to finance regenerative agriculture projects. And that's something else that our token can offer here, our token model, where you could, uh, you could say to the farmer, you know, we'll pay you a fixed amount per NRT that you generate, and then we'll sell the NRTs on your behalf and we'll take the tokens and that'll be our, like we'll manage this whole process for you. And so you get, you don't have to do all that work and we'll take the tokens as a, as our potential return. And then, and then they could use them as an asset uh, that they want to um, invest on. Uh, 
so there, there are just different ways that people could develop new financing mechanisms to make this sort of thing possible. And there are probably ways that people can do this that we haven't even thought of yet. And right. we're just trying to create the tools that people can use and come up with something creative. Yeah. I love it. I think it's, I think it's really great. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm just really excited to like keep in touch and, and continue brainstorming ideas on, on how to invigorate this, this economy that really desperately needs to come alive in the next decade. I mean, ASAP really. For sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's definitely happening. There's definitely been a huge cultural shift and, um, Something like uh, 90% of consumers are willing to pay more for brands that are sustainable. Like people want this. And we're seeing this mostly driven by businesses that want to do right by their, either by their customers or their shareholders, or in some cases, their employees. And our, our long-term vision on the demand side is an API integration. So uh, imagine pay, uh, like removing carbon emissions in real time as they're created. So you take an Uber ride and at the end of the ride, maybe a sponsor plays an ad and then they pay for removing uh, the emissions from the ride that you just took. And maybe maybe these larger purchasers are, are pre-purchasing tokens so that they know exactly what their cost is and they're just viewing this on an annual basis. So they're, they're not uh, susceptible to like market price fluctuations, which is always a thing in crypto, right? So... Um, uh, you could maybe order, actually we, we did a pilot with Shopify last fall where Shopify bought 5,000 tons from us, uh, 5,000 NRTs, and then they used them to negate the emissions from every purchase that was made from a Shopify merchant over the Black Friday, Cyber mm. Monday weekend. That's so awesome. it was, it was a manual kind of like two-step process, sure. but like that could happen in real time. Uh, on like a microtransaction basis. That's what we're right. trying to get to is really commoditizing carbon removal. Yes, I love that. I think that's totally the goal. And, um, you know, the, like you're definitely doing uh, doing the dirty work as far as like really creating a, a um, high fidelity asset that that serves as the foundation for that micro micro system of 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 interactions and 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 carbon uh carbon you know the carbon market essentially creating that that underlying incentive layer for everyone to kind of participate in um that's that's exactly what what we need to do in order for it to you know for us to solve this existential problem essentially right yeah (laughs) and like fingers crossed (laughs) i mean honestly yeah yeah, exactly It's sort of like um, like when the iPhone first came out, there was no mm. App Store. They didn't yeah. do that until the iPhone 3G. And uh, I remember when they announced the App Store, they, I guess, yeah, it was still Steve Jobs at that point. He, he said something like, you know, we don't know what you developers are going to build, but we know it's going to be really cool. And now, like over a decade later, there's like hundreds of millions of apps and billions upon billions of dollars in revenue these independent developers have earned. And they, they created this amazing flourishing ecosystem because they had the right fundamental tool sets in order to do so. And we're, right. that's our same, we're, we're trying to follow that same playbook here is create the tool set that people can use to create uh, what is going to be a trillion dollar economy that's around right. removing carbon from the atmosphere. I love that. I think that's awesome. You Are you all scaling then? I mean, you must be moving pretty... I mean, there's a, there's like a, there's two paces of it, right? Because you, you have to be very slow and patient and thoughtful about the soil capture 
market that you're creating currently and then you also but then there's also this expansive network of ideas and opportunities that i'm sure Mm -hmm. that you know you also want to kind of scale into i guess yeah we we raised a uh, seed round uh from placeholder and uh, north island ventures and then um a couple ag tech uh, uh funds as well and uh, in the we did that in August of last year. So we've been growing our team. We're at 15. We're still growing a little bit. So if anyone's interested, we're definitely looking for engineers, especially. So nori.com slash careers. Um, so we're growing Solidity and, and this year. Uh, full stack. Cool. Yeah. Because um, uh, actually, like most of the software piece is not on chain stuff, mm-hmm. although there is some of that. Uh, it's more like traditional enterprise software development uh, kind of thing. And um, this year, our focus is on scaling up. Uh, we're, we're building out our sales team right now uh, because we finally have a robust supply pipeline. And then it's that token launch. That's like the big milestone for us later this year. Awesome. We'll That's probably really do that in, um, yeah, we'll, we'll probably do the token launch um, in like a balancer liquidity bootstrap yep. pool sort of thing. Just Excellent. start DeFi and go from there. Yeah, I think that's great. That seems to be the the standard these days, honestly. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Right on. Well, I'll definitely keep a lookout for that. I, um, I mean, this, this is it's it's hard to find token economies. You know, I think like in twenty seventeen, I got into Ethereum because I was like, oh, they're gonna make this decentralized energy microtransaction thing, and it's gonna create you know more <laughs> yeah. efficient electric markets. And then I like start talking to teams. And it's, you know, these are just ideas, right? <laughs> and so, yeah. um, because to, to create a real utility out of a token economy, it takes so much groundwork. Um, and so anyway, it's really refreshing to talk to you who, who's done s- such an awesome job kind of like making that happen and building the foundation that, that is required to, to, to make a, an economy that actually is meaningful outside of its um, trading on, on Coinbase. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, infrastructure is really hard and we've been at it for multiple years now. And I'm so excited that we're finally at the point of starting to layer in the crypto economics portion. Yeah, that's that's super exciting. I'm, I'm stoked. Well, Paul, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, James. This was fun. If you want to explore more and deepen your understanding of cryptocurrency concepts and mechanisms available today, please visit our Gitbook or Crypto Encyclopedia. You can find it on our website at squareone.tech. Thanks for listening. Square One would not be possible without support from the Bloom Community Grants Program. Bloom is sponsoring research and development grants to the crypto community to collaborate on some exciting new initiatives to benefit the crypto ecosystem. If you have an idea for something to explore in token economics, unsecured DeFi lending, or token utility, reach out to grants at bloom.co.